Hey there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five tenets of journalism, who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. You're listening to episode 25, where we address listener questions, comments, and concerns. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. All right, so this is our very first listener question episode, which is super exciting. Uh, We have gotten an email that says, the question I have I would like to explore is, can slash is it normal to feel compersion for one partner while you have a much harder time with compersion for another? And I don't know if you want to go into this. I I have have thoughts, but... uh, (laughs) I mean, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... I think the most simple answer is yes, of course. Uh, Every relationship is going to be different and you're going to have different feelings attached to those relationships. I think some people make it easy to feel compersion. You know, some metamors make it easy, maybe because they're super nice or caring or they're really thoughtful about your feelings and you see that. And so it's just easier to feel compersion for them, I think, because especially if you consider them a friend. If it's a complete stranger, that might be a little bit harder because you you don't know you don't know them well enough to you know feel joy for their joy because you just don't know them. Now, I guess is compersion also feeling joy for your metamor's joy? I don't know. Could be. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, Depends on how many ripples out in the circle you think of it. I guess. Yeah. But then I think also depending on how much you know your partner, it can be. Uh, very different because say you have a partner who you've been married to for 12 years uh you hypothetically are to, for hypothetically example. yeah <laughs> i haven't been married 12 yeah, years but you know <laughs> yeah like s- someone you've been with for a long period of time you are going to fe- have different feelings than someone you've been with for six months you know i just feel like that's pretty normal and i think a question maybe to look at is also where might you be feeling more ill at ease yourself in a relationship or more um, maybe insecure in a relationship? And I don't mean that in like a judgmental way, but like, is there something going on in the relationship where you're having trouble feeling compersion that you're not addressing Mm -hmm. where, you know, you would like more time or more attention or more, um, you know, more of some kind of, fun activity or reassurance or just plain time. I mean, it could be anything. And that's a question to look at yourself. What's in the way of maybe my feeling compersion? What is, what might be missing for me Mm -hmm. in my relationship with this person that maybe analyzing what gives you compersion for one partner and, and, and yeah, where it's lacking with another. Um, And then if you really want to feel compersion, I don't think that compersion is necessary to have a good relationship. It's just like an added bonus. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very nice. Um, but if you, if it's something like a goal for you, then maybe really delving into where do you feel compersion for that one partner that you don't for another and how maybe can you create that? Yeah. I think in one of our episodes we had like a, it was a fake it till you make it kind of <laughs> about compersion, like see how you can make compersion happen for you. Well, that's a really good idea, too, is you could sort of take it on as a practice. Like when you notice yourself having these feelings of 
really not compersion, mm-hmm. whether you know jealousy mm-hmm. or envy or whatever the whatever negative feeling it is that you're having that you're identifying as <laughs> I want to be feeling conversion and I'm not. You could actually look at like, okay, well, what is like one small thing going on here that I could identify as I could feel conversion about that, like they really like being outside and they're outside. So I'm happy that they get to be outside. (laughs) Like even if it's just like that, it has nothing to do with another relationship or another person. That's that's fair. Uh, I also think it's easy for people to feel jealous of someone who they've been with for a long period of time, as opposed to someone who they've been with for a short period of time. So a newer relationship. And the reason I say this is that I have, I almost never, if I'm like dating someone who's married, I rarely feel jealous for that person um, who they've been with for, you know, 10, 20 years. But if they date a new person, if I feel totally differently about them, because I'm like, I'm already coming into a relationship and people that I'm dating have told me this as well. They have no jealous feelings for Rob whatsoever. But if I start dating someone else, they're like, oh, but, but I'm your boyfriend. Right. <laughs> like, oh, that what? makes yeah. a lot of sense to yeah, me, actually, exactly. that it's when you are, because it's, it's less obviously apples to oranges mm-hmm. under those circumstances. Well, and you're already coming into a situation that from day one, you have recognized as the the fact of the relationship. Okay, she's married. And then if something changes, well, change is always going to kind of like make you have feelings. Right. right. So yep. um, even if they're just for a second and you go, oh, that's ludicrous. Okay, let's go get beyond that and uh, uh, and and not not let that like change my behavior in any way because feeling jealous is not a problem. It's really what you do with that jealousy that is a problem. Exactly. All right. Do we want to tackle our somewhat complicated Facebook (laughs) listener question? Yes. All right. This is a long question. So I'm going to read the whole thing. And then um, Lindsay and I have sort of broken it down into three parts, which we will address individually. I have a question that's a little vague. Since I started researching and learning about polyamory, and holy wow, is there lots to learn, one thing I've noticed is that despite there being infinite ways to design relationships, there are very strident views within the polyamorous community on how not to design relationships. What sets polyamory apart from other forms of non-monogamy? What are the minimum requirements to consider a relationship polyamorous? What are the minimum requirements to consider one's self polyamorous? Is there more to it than just honesty, communication, transparency, and consent? Question comes from my experience as a newbie, as well as my experience in other online polyamory groups. I understand why people with experience get so frustrated with so-called tourists, but I also get frustrated with the dogma that accompanies this idea of quote-unquote multiple, loving relationships. I see so many comments on posts that vehemently claim one must take responsibility for one's feelings. Otherwise, maybe Polly isn't right for them. The comment itself does not seem to come from a place of love. There is no mention of a partner's role in helping to process and understand. I see so many posts claiming that hierarchy is bad because it is limiting the potential of other relationships. But if I, as an individual, decide I don't want a second primary, or my primary and I decide that together, isn't that different than my primary saying I can't have one? So that's all all of the really many more than three questions, but (laughs) Lindsay and I kind of consolidated them into three topic areas. And I think the first one is definitely like identifying as polyamorous versus 
polyamory as a verb, doing polyamory. And this is a question that people are asking in polyamorous, like especially online polyamory forums all the time. Do you identify as polyamory as your orientation and your identity, or are you doing polyamory? And I do think that it, that answer can be yes for, for different people, right? I personally, personally identify as polyamorous. It is who I am, whether I am dating six people or whether I'm dating one. Um, or none. Even. Or none, exactly, right? Um, so you can be single and polyamorous. I think it is, for me, more of a mindset. And so when people say, well, what you're doing isn't polyamory. Uh, sure, I guess if you're in a monogamous relationship, what you are doing, the verb, is a monogamous relationship. But you as a person can always be polyamorous, just as if... A person is bisexual and they're dating only a person of, you know, their gender or a different gender. It doesn't actually matter. It doesn't change who you are inside or if they're dating no one, right? Um, so when it comes to people in the community, questioning people, identity policing people, I really, I frown on that, I guess. I, I try to prevent people from being like, well, you're not poly because you don't do xyz or well this makes you a swinger because of x y and z and i think we we covered it a bit in um the last episode where you do kind of want to jump on those people a little bit because they're doing it so differently than you and you're like but we have rules <laughs> it means you know polyamory means loving more and what you're doing doesn't isn't my definition of it right but I think you kind of have to step back a bit and be like, hey, everyone is on their journey. And maybe if they start a different place than you or a more problematic place than you, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where they're going to be forever. So when I see people say unicorn hunting, that is a problematic space, in my opinion. And oftentimes it's the first place that people start when they open up their relationship. And it's not the last place that they end. So not often. Um, so I feel like people grow, people change. And people do grow and change in and out of polyamory as well. Like they'll sometimes become monogamous. They'll sometimes change their identity or their the way that they do relationships. So I don't know if there are minimum requirements. Well, I think I would say maybe I have one or two ideas for minimum requirements. And the minimum requirement for if you consider yourself polyamorous, polyamorous is that you consider yourself polyamorous right, right. Do you and the same way like at the minimum requirement for considering a relationship polyamorous is if you consider the relationship polyamorous maybe ideally also all of the people involved right. in the relationship consider themselves polyamorous but yeah. i wouldn't actually even say that's a minimum requirement i have a partner who identifies as single and does mm -hmm. not identify as polyamorous, but he's comfortable in a relationship with me because he's not looking for an escalatory relationship and it works for us at this time it, where both of us are. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have to consider himself to be polyamorous to be in a polyamorous relationship. And I think he would acknowledge that our relationship is polyamorous, mm -hmm. even though he isn't personally. I think the other part of this, though, is we tend to get very hung up sometimes culturally on labels. And particularly when one is exploring various aspects of ethical non-monogamy kind of early in one's journey on that front, 
it can be very difficult to figure out which of these labels do I really want to own. And, you know, you might, and even over time, you might evolve, you know, not just early in a, in a journey, but over decades in a journey. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would like to say that the minimum requirements are being ethical and everyone having like consenting to the relationship. But that doesn't always happen in polyamorous relationships. Again, it's it just like in monogamous relationships, the minimum requirement generally is like you're only with one person. That doesn't always happen. And they might still identify as monogamous, right? So, so yeah, I, I agree. I think the minimum requirement is that you identify that way or you identify your relationship that way. And that's kind of all you need. It does make it very vague. It does make it very open. We do get, I think, into some best practices in the um, the writer's question. Like, honesty, communication, transparency, and consent are clearly best practices. Yes. And so we certainly want to encourage those things. But if somebody is arguing with you about whether your relationship or your relationships are, or you personally are, really poly, they probably are somebody you don't want to waste your time with anyway. So I would say, thanks very much. Move on. (laughs) Right. Not, I mean, you know, obviously depends on what the relationship means to you, but Mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to get into an argument with them, it's probably going to feel like spinning your wheels. Right. All right. Do we want to try to move on to the second part of the question? So to recap that question, it is about taking responsibility for your feelings, or as Cunning Minx would say, owning your shit, and how, what is the partner, your partner's role in helping you process and understand, uh, or is it just reliant on that one person to own their shit and take responsibility for their feelings? Uh, This is also a very common question, and I don't know, I guess I would like to hear your thoughts on it, because I am very into personal responsibility. I don't think it is your partner's role. I think it makes them a good partner, maybe, if they help you out. But I don't think it's their responsibility whatsoever for a person to own their shit, to take care of any problems they have. I don't know. So I'm, I'm very into personal responsibility, but I'd like to hear other people's um, thoughts. Well, as the other person here, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that one of the things that we sometimes do culturally is we have this idea that because we're feeling a feeling, we have to do something with that feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, if it's an upsetting feeling, then we have to, you know, have somebody else fix it for us or help us fix it. And I think actually that the fundamental premise of that is kind of off. Like, you don't have to do something about every feeling you have. Sure. Like... Mm -hmm. I think we end up, you know, sort of developing ideas about ourselves at various points in time when we're children and young adults. And we then, like, live our lives like those things are true. So I had a story about myself that developed when I was probably eight or nine years old that I was repulsive. Hmm. And I then, like, lived like that was true. Like, uh, it was sort of always what I was listening for for other people. And that's probably how I ended up in a 11-year monogamous marriage where we didn't have sex for the last eight years of the marriage because who would want to have sex with me? I was repulsive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, objectively, I get that that is a story that I made up. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, I can see that. And so it doesn't control my behaviors. But sometimes, in the middle of feeling really intense feelings, I don't know that I am in that story. And if I can take a deep breath for a moment and try to figure out, like, what am I upset about? And then see, like, 
oh, that is me doing that little shit again. And I'm making a finger sign like a little voice talking in my head, which is, you know, not very useful on a podcast. But there you go. <laughs> you know, like, it's just a little feeling and voice in my head that can catch me. And it doesn't actually require that I do anything. But when I recognize that that's what I'm doing, it can often diffuse the situation a lot. And it doesn't, nobody, it's nobody else's responsibility. Nobody made me make up that story. Nobody made me live like it's true. It's just how life kind of works. Mm -hmm. And it's great if you have a partner who maybe can sometimes see that you're doing a thing when you can't see it as fast and say, hey, in this conversation, I wonder if maybe you're doing that thing you do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yours is going to look different from mine. Like everybody's is going to look how it's going to look. But sometimes it's easier for someone from the outside to see that you're doing it. And if you can have the kind of relationship where that doesn't then make you feel defensive about it, mm -hmm. you'll be able to say like, hey, are you doing that thing? Like, I am not. Mm -hmm. Wait. Oh, maybe I am. I mean, that can be <laughs> as simple as like, I know Rob gets super cranky when he's hungry. Like, you know. Yeah, that's a like, great example. There, he will He will say something in just a tone where I'm like, have you eaten today? And he's like, no. And I was like, oh, I know. Okay. Well, we're going to get you food. We can continue this conversation after you've eaten because you're a shit right now. Like, you know, like. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I don't think he takes too much offense. Hopefully, well, maybe if he's super hungry, he does. But. Right. Um, but he, even he then, he gets over it once he's yes. eaten something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is a terrific and maybe less emotionally intense example than right. the one that I gave. But I think everybody has their thing like those things, mm -hmm. and probably lots of them because we're humans and we're kind of complicated. Um, so I think it's not your partner's responsibility to manage those feelings or identify mm -hmm. the things that you do when you get upset or uncomfortable or weird. It can be very helpful. Yeah. Um, certainly, you don't want to be with somebody who's going to intentionally try to push those buttons. Or, right, or take advantage of you helping all right, the time. And right. then, then becoming dependent on you helping. Because I think that at some point, especially when it comes to emotional help, your partner isn't necessarily going to be qualified to do that. So I would suggest... If you do need extensive help, like a therapy is where you should go, not a partner. Partners, right. unless they're a therapist. But then again, also, if they're a therapist, maybe don't go to them because right, right, they, they, they shouldn't be your right. therapist if they're an actual therapist. There's a little bit of an ethical issue there. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So um, so I feel like if you need extra help going in to see a counselor or, or even a, a friend that is willing to, you know, like lend the mental energy to help or listen, even just listen. I think that that's really important that you don't put all of the pressure to help you uh, either be a better person or help you solve an issue or uh, whatever the case may be on your partner, because that can be a lot of pressure and that can be really taxing and putting a lot of pressure and taxing on an already like open polyamorous relationship, which can be kind of taxing. It, it's a lot. And yeah, I, I just think that I, I like to say that, you know, I think people should be responsible for their own feelings, but that is also coming from a person who I like to go into my own feelings and work through them. And it's something that I don't put on my partner because I, I'm just in a place that that's not how it works it's, for you. It's just not how it works for me. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I definitely come at it from a different perspective than I think maybe other people do or people who have maybe been in monogamous relationships for a long time or maybe even dependent kind of relationships, codependent relationships where they specifically went to one partner for help 
continuously and that's what they knew and that's what we're also socialized to believe is right is your partner helps you out whenever you need help right so I think that unfortunately codependency is also kind of socially encouraged in a lot of ways so not that I'm saying all people who go to their partner for help are codependent but it can it can it can right. get that. It can happen. It can get that way. Yeah. I think one other thought I had in that was, you know, if you do find yourself in a situation where you notice a pattern with a partner, where something happens on a regular basis and you have a big emotional reaction to it, it's not necessarily wrong to say, "Hey, I've noticed this pattern. It makes me uncomfortable. What can we do to?" mix things up so that we're not repeating this pattern over and over again. And, you know, it might not be, it's not reasonable to say you can't, you know, ever go out with somebody when I don't have a date level of pattern recognition. But if there's something like, um, I've noticed that when you come home and you really smell like sex, it really bothers me. Like, can you have a shower before you go or as soon as you get home? Like that's a more reasonable request. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, I've noticed that, you know, you often, um, like we'll talk about watching something new on Netflix and then you'll watch it with somebody else. And that really, you know, (laughs) upsets me. And so can we not do that? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. those kinds of things are things you could negotiate around where if, you know, it's, it involves your partner. It's not you making them be responsible for your feelings, but it's noticing patterns and trying to come up with reasonable ways to manage the feelings that you're having. Right. And then I think that there are a lot of There are a lot of people who do unreasonable requests, right? And we hear those all the time. Uh, And I think just trying to listen to yourself and and think, would I be okay if, not only if my partner asked me this, but like if my mom asked this of me, you know, like I I remember the multi-amory podcast talking about that once, like if my mom tried to veto our relationship, would I listen to her? I love my mom. I think she is probably trying to... She wants you to be happy. She wants me to be happy, do the best for my life, whatever. But if she tried to veto a relationship, would I respect that? No, I wouldn't, because that's ridiculous. Right. But I would if it was my husband? No. No, I wouldn't. Right. That's ridiculous. You know, or if you're... What would you do if your best friend came to you with the question, you know, should I ask my partner to do X? Right. Yeah. Yeah, those are all good filters to think about whether or not a question is reasonable. All right. And then third part of this question, hierarchy is bad because it is limiting the potential of other relationships. But if you decide you want to have, I think what she's asking is, can hierarchy be ethical if it's consensual? And I actually think that, yes, I think that, and my example that I often um, will bring up is I'm in a marriage, right? Um, And this is an example. I am in a marriage, but um, say I am in a hierarchical or at least somewhat hierarchical relationship just based on the fact that I am married. If I start dating someone who is also married and in a hierarchical relationship and neither of us want to change the dynamic in our primary relationship and we only want secondary relationships with one another and we're going into it with all cards on the table saying yes you will not be as higher of a priority as my family or my my partner or whatever I don't think that there's necessarily anything unethical about that because it's consensual because it is you're being honest with one another I think what 
ends up being the problem with hierarchies is people bringing in relationships as if they are going to be as important or as if they are going to be as um, with the potential to have the level of importance as their other partners and then kind of like it's that we like to call it like sneaky archy <laughs> where they're like, <laughs> I like that they're like, we're, we're, we're totally relationship anarchists except you don't get any of the rights uh, or privileges as my other partner and you, you kind of get blindsided by that that's where I think a lot of the problems come in so in my opinion if you don't want a second primary or if you do want hierarchical relationships as long as the other person is fully on board and that is what they also want and you're not just forcing that on them, I don't necessarily see a problem with that. I have a slightly different take on it. I don't agree. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree substantively with what you've said, but I am sort of a word nerd and sure. I find myself really uncomfortable with the idea of explicitly identifying a relationship as secondary or one relationship as primary with all the other relationships as implicitly not as important. There's something that just feels kind of shitty to me about the idea of like, I really love you second best Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. or maybe not even second best somewhere down the line. I really love you, but you know, definitely not as much as I love this other person. And of course we don't all love everybody equally. There's, you know, the, there's not some sort of perfect, um, I don't know, design diagram with dots that are all an equidistant, you know, space from the from yourself as the center of the circle. But I guess that is one of the things that I sort of find attractive about the idea of relationship anarchy is we can acknowledge that all of these relationships aren't the same, but they're all important to us. And you can treat them fairly. I think that that's a big thing is people relationships don't have to be equal to be fair you don't have to have a kid and a mortgage and a marriage with somebody to treat them with the same level of respect as you do your married partner right and so i think that that is important to treat someone fairly and with respect and not necessarily everything doesn't have to be equal right and what that means is that Barring a real emergency, you know, if you make a plan with somebody, it's a real plan. And if you, you know, you're trying to make sure that you're seeing and spending time with the people who are important to you, um, it may, it obviously isn't always going to be the same amount of time or the same kind of time, but people who are important to you in your life know that they're important to you in your life and have that experience and don't feel like you're taking them for granted or you're just there to for a fuck buddy or you know some other kind of like oh it would be convenient for me to see you this one time and so I guess I'll see you as opposed to like I care about you you're important to me when can we find the time because you know this like scheduling stuff is it's a real thing it's a real challenge for especially for you know anybody with who works (laughs) and uh, particularly the more complicated you get work, children, pets, volunteer commitments, like all those things are also priorities and you don't, you don't want people to feel like afterthoughts. Right. But if what you want is to really similarly equal level of commitments and similarly equal levels of time and similarly equal levels of, you know, whatever your metrics are like, yeah, if that's what you want and the people you're involved with want that too. Great. Wonderful. That's not unethical at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's actually really, fa- you know, fantastic. Good mm-hmm. for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
It really all depends on having each person with whom you are in a relationship want the same kind of relationship that you want with them. So yeah. everybody doesn't have to want the same kind of relationship. Right. But right. if I have a relationship with upon, A, yeah. A wants the same kind of relationship with me that mm -hmm. I want with A, and B has the same kind of relationship desires with me that I have with B, right. and so on. Well, and the end of our question is, isn't that different than my primary saying I can't have like a second primary or something. And I, th I think it is different. I think it's fundamentally different if your primary or your partner is um, trying to control what kind of relationships you have, that is different than you saying, I only want X type of relationship. And even if they're saying, I only want a casual sex only relationship, or I only want a kink relationship, or I only want someone who I'm going to have kids with, you know, like people branch off in polyamory for a, a many, many reasons. So if you're if your partner is saying, uh, no, you definitely cannot do X, Y, and Z, I do think that's different than you making your own choices. Earlier in the sentence, the, um, the writer asks, if my primary and I decide that together, mm -hmm. isn't that different than my primary saying I can't have one? And I don't know exactly what that means mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think, sure, if you have a spouse and you're opening up your marriage, that's going to be something that what that looks like, the two of you obviously are going to talk about and negotiate and try to figure out what you think is going to work for you. And that's not unethical. But once you are actively dating someone outside of that spousal relationship, and I'm using this as a hypothetical, mm -hmm. assuming that, so the, the writer has a name to me that appears to be gendered female. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make a series of assumptions to be able to use language here that's going to be a little bit less awkward. I'm going to assume, let's see, the person is, you know, person A is married to person B, and they decide together what kinds of relationships they think they're interested in. And then the, the writer starts dating person C. It's not up to A and B to decide what A's relationship with C is going to be. That's very true. And B might have opinions about that. B might have feelings about that. But unless C is part of that conversation, I mean, you don't B get doesn't really get to make people. the decision together with A. That's very true. So, you know, it's complicated because obviously you have a certain level of priority for your existing relationships and you don't want to be... Um, dismissive of their concerns, I think it behooves us as partners to listen to our partners and, you know, respectfully consider their feelings and opinions. But ultimately, you're the person in the relationship, and you're in both of those relationships, and you have to decide how you want to manage your relationships. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is ethical for somebody else to get to decide C's fate right? because the feelings are developing in a way that's different from how A and B negotiated. I agree. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. The Toolshed is a mission-driven, education-based sex toy store located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. More than your typical adult store, the Toolshed provides quality, body-safe products that enhance the sexual lives and relationships of their customers, and they do it all in a comfortable, compassionate, and welcoming atmosphere. Not located near Milwaukee? That's okay. The Toolshed's online shop at www.toolshedtoys.com serves customers all over the world. 
The Toolshed strives to be the source for accurate, up-to-date information about sexual health and pleasure. Their store is staffed by sexual educators who are invested in providing sex-positive and inclusive support to their customers throughout their lifespan, no matter where they're from. The Toolshed stocks a large selection of products made from body-safe materials. They have sex toys for folks of all genders, orientations, and inclinations, including gear for strap-on play, vibrators to stimulate a variety of body parts, BDSM gear, kink supplies, and much more. The Toolshed is also proud to offer a large inventory of gender expression supplies like binders, soft packers, shaping underwear, and breast forms. Last but not least, the Toolshed stocks lots of great books on topics like ethical non-monogamy, how to negotiate consent, kinky play, sexual pleasure, sexual health, and so much more. They've got over 500 different titles in stock at their Milwaukee location and host a regular monthly book club too. Every day, the Toolshed staff answers questions about products, pleasure, health, and relationships, all without shame or stigma. The Toolshed also offers in-person and online private consultations for people who have in-depth questions about any of those things, as well as other subjects like communication and relationships, establishing healthy boundaries, fertility basics, alternative menstrual products, and other topics folks deal with every day as sexual beings. You can visit the Toolshed in person at 2427 North Murray Avenue in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or you can check out our online store at www.toolshedtoys.com. From now through the end of 2019, you can use promo code POLY2019, P-O-L-Y-2019, at checkout for 10% off your next purchase. Thanks. All right, welcome back. So we had two questions that were very similar, and uh, I'm going to read both of them. So the first question is a listener asking, how do you balance staying true to yourself and not living in the closet with a partner's desire slash need to be discreet? And then another listener asked, if you label your relationship, what do you label it and why? And how do you introduce your partners to others? Obviously, there are distinct components to that, but I I felt like they really tied together. So I advocated for labeling or to addressing them uh, together. And I have some thoughts about this, which do you mind if I just dive in? Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am one of those people who has to be discreet. um, And I struggle myself with the desire not to live in a closet and with the question of how to introduce partners. And I had a situation yesterday where I was out with a partner and metamore and friends and um, we ran into other people that I knew and it was a social situation where like it would have been super weird to not introduce them and I had this moment of (gasps) how am I going to introduce these people to each other and I ended up kind of taking the easy way out and introducing the you know sort of collective group as oh have you met my friends so and so and so and so but I felt uncomfortable with that decision myself Mm -hmm. and I felt like that is kind of me being closeted in a way that I don't like. And I don't even really think that the person I was introducing them to would have had a bad reaction or would have cared. But because I wasn't prepared for it, I had the like reaction and then just started talking. And as somebody with years of dragging myself out of the closet at every opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Have you met my wife? Have you met my wife? Have you met my Mm -hmm. ex-wife? It's super weird for me to be 
putting myself in these situations now where I'm not coming out even in a natural opportunity to. And it's, I'm not a fan, but yeah. I'm not really sure quite what I want to do. Or this is something that I personally am definitely struggling with. And I would love to hear as people listen to this, your comments, your ideas, your suggestions, Definitely. Um, yeah, so I have some thoughts, too. I, I've dated people who, because of their job, they could not be out. Some people who couldn't even be on Facebook, you know, like things like that because of their jobs or because of their family or whatever the case may be. I came out because I, I feel like I'm I'm very privileged that I can be out at my job to all of my friends. All of my friends know I'm poly. Most of my family knows I'm poly, and the parts that, of my family who don't don't live anywhere near here so I'm not going to run into them at the grocery store you know I just or out at a restaurant when I'm on a date it's just not going to happen so I am out most of the time and I do feel that is a privilege um that I can be out most of the time and I know that other people don't have that privilege and I try to respect that and if we have a conversation and they say hey if we meet somebody at a restaurant do you are you offended if I call you my friend and when I'm dating someone, they are my friend. Like, I, I like to say that the people I date are my friends, right? So I am often not offended if someone calls me their friend. Of course, in a lot of, a lot of people are. A lot of people say it's like dishonoring the relationship. You're lessening the relationship. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with being a friend. So when someone identifies me as their friend, I'm not offended by it. Some people are, and I totally understand that. The question that we had gotten also had a couple comments, and this the same listener said, I'm so over taking my wedding ring off. That is something I have never done. I have never removed my wedding ring on a date. I know a lot of people, poly people that do, but I think that, I don't think that people will necessarily bring it up. Maybe some family members would, but if they see a wedding ring and you say you're out with a friend, or if you do say you're out with a partner and they see a wedding ring, are a lot of people gonna be like, hey, so what the, what the fuck? <laughs> Maybe some people would, but but I've never experienced that yet. Also, a lot of the people who I'm going out with also are wearing wedding rings. So they, so I think if people see us out and about, they'd probably just assume, oh, they're both wearing wedding, wedding rings. They're both either married to other people or married to each other. But either way, I don't have to really, um, uh, I'm not going to ask. I've never had a problem with it. I, I don't know. I am below average and observant of things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I would never have noticed right. if I ran into you and someone out at a restaurant, whether either of you was wearing a wedding ring. Uh. But I know that some people do notice those things. Yeah. And I suspect that if you ran into a, a nosy family member who was observant about that kind of thing and you weren't wearing a wedding ring, it would probably draw their attention more. Oh, that would definitely set off a red flag, right? If they were... If you are out on a date and not wearing your red right. wedding Here you ring, are out with somebody worse. of yeah. your presumed sexual attraction right. type and not wearing your wedding ring. Like that seems like that, that has cheating. the potential. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I it's maybe that's, I mean, not, not maybe that's what you are into the cheating. But, you know, if you don't feel like it's appropriate to wear your wedding ring when you're out on dates with someone else, like that's your business. Right. Like you right. should make the call that you want to. You know, what, I'm going to try to go back here and take a look at that um, comment. Sure. Well, another thing that I, I found interesting is that, that when I'm out at a, like, let's say a burlesque show or uh, or at a social event or something, all of the people around me know who I am and what I am, right? So I've had people who I guess didn't, didn't necessarily know that about me standing around in a circle with literally six people 
all of whom are poly and they're you know someone will ask a question so how do you know Lindsay and they're like uh um <laughs> I don't know how, how do we know each other ha, ha, uh, and I'm like I don't know how do we know each other you know like I'm just I'll let people answer for themselves because I'm like you know uh, I, I don't have any secrets here and if they say well uh, we've gone on a date the other people are gonna just be like yeah okay cool and, and um, or or I know Lindsay through the poly group and it's like oh okay yeah that's also how I know her <laughs> like um, that's happened a, a number of times which has been really funny because I'm just like oh no I, everyone knows I'm I am not in the closet to almost anyone you really don't have to. and honestly I surround myself with other poly people so it's generally going to be okay even my boss at work or something you know like they all know everyone knows mm -hmm. but again that's a position that almost no one is in but me <laughs> right so I think you know there's uh, there was also a comment on there of it sort of what do you do to honor the relationship without mm -hmm. when you can't come out to um, you know they asked about family but I think co-workers other places where you might be around people um, and I think that's probably something that and I'm you know noting this to myself as well probably something you should talk over with the partners yes. like how do you want to be identified and how will you feel under circumstances x versus circumstances y you know running into a group of people you know who are you know they're all poly except maybe right. there's somebody you don't know introducing them as this is my partner um or you know oh yeah i'm going on a date right now whatever those kinds of things are probably fine um you know running into your aunt at some random restaurant maybe that's more awkward but you know throwing out a couple of those hypotheticals seems like it might be a useful exercise yeah. for a lot of relationships and it might be something where how you feel about it also evolves over time mm -hmm. and also don't have that conversation like on the way to meeting up with friends maybe you know like kind of have that separate conversation see how people feel about it maybe give them time to answer and then if their answer is uh no i really don't feel respected with you calling me a friend uh i'd rather just not meet your family or whatever the case may be um or you can always just say like this is katie yeah this yeah. is mm -hmm. Lindsay." like yeah. mm -hmm. you don't have to identify people as their relationship to you mm-hmm mm -hmm. Um, and I think that oftentimes people will ask, so how did you meet so-and-so? Right. Uh, saying you met them through friends is always acceptable. People generally don't delve into that. And, uh, or saying you met them, you know, you could say it through a social meetup or through a group or through work or, uh, friends of friends at a barbecue, you know? Right. There are a million potentially truthful answers exactly, that are not right. controversial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe even just finding the, the truth, saying you met them online, <laughs> uh, but then eh, making it a little bit more broad than I met them on OkCupid or I met them yeah. on Tinder. You know, um, you could still kind of not lie while not being 100% honest. Either. Right, right. And I had, a, I had a funny moment actually kind of like that uh, last week where I was out at the Washington Park band shell mm -hmm. and I ran into... Uh, a couple who had come to their first poly discussion group hmm. out there and they recognized me and then, but they were there with someone else who I know to be part of the poly group, who is a friend mm -hmm. who, you know, was very, very excitedly like, Oh, you know, I'm seeing so-and-so and the conversation 
ended up where we figured out that we knew a lot more people <laughs> in town because it's small walkie. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I mean, we didn't have an opportunity to have the conversation beyond how do you two know each other um, with any of the myriad of additional people that I now know in com- you know that I now know mm-hmm. I know in common with these mm-hmm. people who are relatively new to um, being actively parts of the po- part of the poly community. Um, but it, it's it's always interesting to try to figure out how to navigate some of those spaces when they do come up. Right. Yeah. It, it's also it's really funny when people are like. Yeah, you, you find common friends or, or even just, you know, someone from the poly group friends me on Facebook and I see I have 24 friends in common. And I was like, okay, wow. And and of those friends, 11 of them are already in my poly group. And I'm like, well, do they know they're poly? Are they just opening up? Or, or you know, there was somebody I was talking to on OkCupid and they work at a place that two of the people from poly group work at. And I was like, do they know their poly? Right. Do they like, know you don't this person? Out people. I don't want to out them. Do I ask the person I know if they know them and if they're right. a good person and then <laughs> therefore out them? You know, like, yes, yeah. it um, is complicated. It's very complicated. I've had the very entertaining situation of where you look at that and you see like, oh, we have 24 mutual friends and 11 of them are poly. And then the, you know, another 11 of them are members of the teachers union mm. <laughs> or, you know, there's some, or we have political friends in common right. in some other context. Like, yeah. huh. Okay. Well, I, at least I'm going to have a very easy time with, we know each other through mutual friends yes. and that uh, yeah, having very. no implication in any way, but mm. it's, it's a funny thing. Mm-hmm. It's a funny thing in Milwaukee. Well, and the, the first part of that question, how do you label your relationships and what do you label it and oh, why? How do you introduce your partners to others? Um, so, like I said, oftentimes when it comes to introducing my partners to others, unless it is another poly person, one of my friends, one of those people who I'm out to and they know everything about me, I will say my partner. Uh, I like the term partner. Right? I don't like bo- boyfriend or girlfriend. It just seems too juvenile. But occasionally I'll say those things just like for ease. Wait, certain context, it's just easier. Yeah, it's exactly. But I don't necessarily have a problem with friend. And usually I'll have that conversation with them and say, Hey, if I introduce you as a friend, is that a problem? If you want to introduce me as a friend, I'm okay with that. You know, I, I like to have that conversation. Um, cause I think that at, at some point you get to a point in the relationship where you go, Hey, what labels would we like? You know, like, especially in polyamorous relationships, I feel like most people have that, even if it's just, can I call you a partner or are we not there yet? Like, are we there? Uh, let's, let's talk about this. I always think that that's a good conversation to have. If you label your relationship, what do you label it and why? I think that's um, very dependent on the relationship, but yeah. yeah. Although I think your examples are responsive. I, I agree with you on the conversations about it. And I think also sometimes you may find that those evolve. I am coming around to liking the word partner more <laughs> than I <laughs> used to. Right. And if I'm comfortable being out with someone or if we are in a group where I'm, you know, it's mostly poly people and I know that and I know that the partner I'm with also knows that, then I'm very comfortable using partner. 
my comet relationship and I recently separately both had this like moment of like, wait, this word does not fit us anymore. Comet. Like, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Like, and we're not seeing each other any with any more frequency, but we both felt like, no, it kind of has a different level of emotional importance than this relationship has come to have for both of us. And it feels like, no, we should just use partner because we're mm-hmm. clearly partners and mm-hmm. we're clearly in this for a long time. And so it's not, yeah, like Comet kind of has this take it or leave it kind of sure. quality. Like, yeah, it's great when they come into town, but you never know when that might be. And it might, you know, who knows? Haley's Comet comes every mm-hmm. how many years? Um, Fleeting and uh, and just intense, right? Right. Like, but, Whereas mm-hmm. this is actually more, it's just a long distance relationship. Yeah. Okay. It's not. That is different. Yeah. yeah for sure. Um, and it was cool that we both kind of had that very clear realization at around the same point in time. Mm-hmm. Um but I think so. Sometimes I think those conversations just naturally happen. You're like, wait, that 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 doesn't sound right anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also having those conversations and figuring out how you want to introduce people, and you know, there's that relationship in particular. Introducing one another doesn't come up often, um, but for lots of complicated reasons, we would probably not necessarily be out if we if it did come up Mm -hmm. um you know and that's something that we will probably be evolving over time as well but and i think you you know when you come across somebody like say at a grocery store and it's just like a random happenstance those will often and and i think you just kind of have to mentally prepare yourselves but they will take you off guard and sometimes you can't prepare for everything so you might fuck up and be like well this is my friend or I don't know them, you know, like who knows what right. you'll accidentally do right. not thinking about it. What thing will come out of your mouth in a panic. Exactly, in, in a panic mode, right. Um, that happens, and oftentimes um, it might hurt someone's feelings, and you, you kind of have to deal with that as it comes. Um, but I think that if it's, say, Christmas or Thanksgiving that you're bringing them with, you have time to, if you have time to plan traveling to family, you have time to have a discussion with what you're comfortable with. And um, if you're bringing them, I know um, my husband, his family has big get togethers, like 4th of July, huge, like 50 to 100 people parties at his parents' house. If he brings friends, um, that's normal. Like they, they grew up with, um, not foster kids, but um, foreign exchange students Uh, in and out of their house. They had, um, he has like 40 cousins. There's just, there's, there's always, always people, tons of people around. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so, and even before Rob and I came out as dating um, to his parents, because he was married at the time, I would come over to his parents' fa- get togethers all the time. And I, and again, at the time, he was just like, this is my friend Lindsay. And they were like, awesome. Right. They nice did to meet not you. care. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So in that family dynamic, it was super chill to just bring friends along. And I came with my other partner, and we we brought legitimate other friends that weren't partner and, or lovers or whatever mm-hmm. along to parties and get-togethers. And they were just like, the more the merrier. We don't care. It wasn't until he actually said, this is my girlfriend. Uh, and they were like, will that be your married? So that doesn't exist. And they just were complete denial mode. Like, That's not a thing. So we won't recognize that. 
if you get a divorce, then maybe we'll recognize it. And then they did when he got a divorce, but they, they were just like, no, that's not, that's not a thing. So, right. so that's just not a thing. Right. <laughs> Head, uh, sand. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. But before that, they were very, very welcoming of, of any amount of friends that he wanted. So, so yeah, I, I guess it does, definitely depends also on your family dynamic and like the other person saying, like, how do I uh, introduce them to a very conservative family? His family's not conservative, so it's much easier. My family's not super conservative on one side. The other side, I just don't bring people home, like right. pretty much ever. Um, so I've, invite, I've invited partners who aren't uh, my husband home to my mom's side of the family, uh, but not my dad's, because one side of the family means more to me. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. So um. I, my parents have met one of my local partners and met him more, and they know that uh, that person is a partner they just the opportunity hasn't really arisen otherwise so I know it would make them uncomfortable right now because they are nervous and think I should be really 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 closeted because of my job Mm -hmm. and they really think that I should just while I have this job you know be a nun but um (laughs) that's not gonna happen yeah Yeah, been there done that (laughs) to, to the extent that yeah so no but it does affect what I would say, I think, in introducing them and how I would put it. Because I kind of like to carefully see how I think people will react. I can imagine a point in time in the future where I might introduce another partner, especially my long distance partner, as my partner. And I think my parents would probably just decide to assume that that meant that I was no longer seeing my current local partner. you know, and they can imagine what they will. I don't know that I would mm-hmm. try to make a giant production of making sure they really understood what I was really saying. Um, but I also wouldn't lie if they did mysteriously decide to ask. Yeah, I, I think that oftentimes that you you have to come into that situation of like, do I lie, or do I have that like close to a lie, but actually the truth or technically truth, right. the technically lies kind of thing, and. And what, what are you more comfortable with? Uh, for me, I often, although I'm a, a very, very bad liar, I don't feel bad about lying to people who are shitty. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> if you have shitty ideas, shitty conservative ideas about how my relationship should be, I don't respect your ideas. And I don't care if I lie to you. That's, That's just me, right? Like, yeah, that I'm like, mm, they don't need to know about my personal life. So I don't need to tell them. But I think I don't care about your <laughs> shitty ideas would be a great title for <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, So we had another interesting question. Uh, How do you navigate being in a relationship with a neurotypical partner when you are neurodivergent? And how does polyamory interplay with that dynamic? I'm going to actually flip that question a little bit. And because I am neurotypical and I am, so I can't answer that question from the point of view of being neurodivergent. But I do think that navigating relationships where your brains work really differently um, is probably very challenging. And it's something where communication is going to be critical. I mean, it's important in any relationship, but I think particularly in this context, it's critical. And it's also something where you're going to have to figure out how do your communication styles work together? Because if one of you is neurodivergent and processes things in a really different way, then, you know, the kind of let's sit down and talk this over that might be comfortable for me might just not work circumstantially. And I think it's going to require a high level of self-knowledge, particularly, and unfortunately, this is 
you know, a level of emotional labor that is unfairly placed. But I think the neurodivergent person has to really be good at advocating for themselves and their needs mm-hmm. and being able to say, I can't communicate this way. I need to communicate this other way. And the, then the per, you know, both people need to really listen to each other and respect the communications needs. And I think that's really different from the kind of negotiating that we were talking about, about um, what kinds of relationships do you want or how is the, how do the ethics of being responsible for your feelings work? You, the, the neurodivergent person still has to really advocate for themselves, but I think it's on the rest of us to believe them mm-hmm. and figure out, okay, if, if I'm committed to being in this relationship, what do I need to do to be able to hear this person and communicate with them so that this relationship works? Um, because the world is better designed for those of us who are neurotypical mm, to, course. you know, we've learned how to communicate with each other. We've learned what standing too close or what, you know, what is standing too close? We've learned about eye contact. We've learned about all these things culturally that are the sort of neurotypical cues we give to show someone we're listening to, you know, whatever other things we're doing. And it behooves us all to learn, I think, a little bit more about that. I mean, one thing that has clearly become better known over the last decade or two is that people who are there are a lot more people who are not neurotypical than we used to realize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe we thought there were only a very tiny number of people. And so there was less drive to look at expanding our communication styles and looking at listening in different ways. But now that we know more, we can't unknow those things. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. um, and it behooves those of us who are neurotypical to do some education. And because there's so many different ways that one can be neurodivergent, it's going to fall to the person that we are hoping to have a relationship with or that we are in some kind of relationship with to give us some advice on how to deal with their specific right. brain. Even if, it, even if that just means pointing them in the direction of educational resources that that kind of align with your... Right, you know, exactly. Like if you are, you are a person are. with an addiction, sending me to, a, you know, my going off and finding a book about people who are on the spectrum is not going to be very helpful. Yes. But if you are a person who um, has an addiction and is managing a certain way or is on the spectrum and has certain communications needs or communication styles, yeah, having some resources in your pocket to be able to say, you know what, this isn't working for me and it's probably not going to work for me. So if you could read this and learn a little bit better about how I work, that would be great. Right. Um, it is unfortunately, like you said, a little bit on the neurodivergent person to, to communicate not only their feelings, but how they come to those feelings and uh, not only, you know, communicate, but then also talk about the best ways that they need to communicate. Um, and I think that comes down to that personal responsibility we were talking about before, that kind of owning your shit, uh, being a responsible partner is going to be communicating to your partner your needs, and not just your desires or the things you want, but l- literally your needs. And I think when it comes to ni- neurotypical and, and divergent, 
the needs are going to be different. So, so communicating with your partner as much as possible and in the way that you can and are able to, uh, and really getting your partner to understand, hopefully there are educational resources at your disposal, at their disposal, so that they can learn about uh, what's going on. Because as, as also a, a neurotypical person, it would be very hard for me to guess or mind read um, when it comes to how a person needs me to act or behave or communicate with them. So I would need that. Mm-hmm. I, if I were dating someone who was neuro, neurodivergent, I would absolutely need like a neurodivergent dating for dummies <laughs> that is such a great book title <laughs> we really need that um, and the second part of the question was how does polyamory interplay with that dynamic and I think I don't know the answer to that I mean I think in you know we've been talking about it as a specific relationship between two individuals which is certainly I think at the core of polyamory but you do then have navigating metamor relationships as well and navigating mm-hmm. dating and the community and that's a really more difficult one i right. think you know i think it behooves a partner if there's going to be metamor interaction to try to help the metamors understand more of that communication style and brain function stuff yeah i think that like with any kind of relationship that maybe has something different about it, right? Like with any relationship with specific needs that that person needs from their partner, you don't always have to rely on one person to have those needs met. And I think polyamory can interplay with this dynamic in saying that like, if your needs aren't specifically being met by one person, maybe they could be met in a different way from someone else. And I mean, that's polyamory just lends itself to having that possibility. It might not be logical or, or, or doable for everyone, but I think when people have specific needs or wants or desires like this, or say somebody is like, I really want a kinky relationship, but my partner is vanilla, they can open up the relationship and, and have a different style of relationship with someone else. So if someone needed a certain kind of communication or a certain kind of uh, person to be with them or they really just want a person that will sit silently in a room with them and work (laughs) Um, then maybe they can get that elsewhere because polyamory allows it right and you know if your neurodivergence results in having very significant multiple aspects to your personality or distinct persona maybe all of them should get the opportunity to be in relationships or, you know, depending on what their needs are, relationships of different kinds. So that's a great thing about polyamory because a single person almost certainly wouldn't be able to meet the needs of all of the personalities or aspects or you know, so, I mean, we know that's difficult enough for neurotypical people to meet all each other's, right. of yes. each other's needs. Yeah. It's got to be just magnified under circumstances like that. Absolutely. All right. So we are actually going to break this up into two parts. So join us next time for part two of our listener questions episode. Yeah. <laughs> we have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank my husband, Rob, for helping us through our many sound issues and thank myself for editing the podcast so we sound smart. 
You can follow us on Facebook at Polyamory Uncensored, contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com, and if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. We will forever be grateful for any contribution you can manage to making this podcast better and more efficient. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.